You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 113, The Fall of Fort Washington. In last week's episode, we saw General Washington pull the Continental Army out of White Plains, New York, and cross the Hudson River into New Jersey. British General William Howe pursued a policy of slow but deliberate overwhelming force. He never gave Washington an opportunity to strike at any extended vulnerability. But his glacial pace also meant that he never could capture the Continental Army or force any sort of determinative battle. The Continental Army still had one outpost on Manhattan. That was Fort Washington. The Americans had built Fort Washington in order to prevent the Royal Navy from sailing up the Hudson. It sat along the river on the New York side, with Fort Lee, formerly Fort Constitution, on the New Jersey side. Any British ship passing up the river would be subject to an artillery assault from both sides. The experience over the summer showed that the forts never accomplished their purpose. With a good tailwind, the British Navy could sail right past both forts, suffering only minor damage. Admiral Richard Howe regularly sent ships upriver for little purpose other than proving he could. By November 1776, with all the rest of the Continental forces out of Manhattan, Fort Washington sat as the last bastion of defense on the island against the British Army. General Howe was ready to move into winter quarters, but not before he dealt with this last holdout. The Americans had spent a year and a half building up the defenses at Fort Washington. They had increased the size of the garrison to about 3,000 defenders. The fort had plenty of cannon, soldiers, and food to withstand a siege of several months. In fact, the fort was far too small for all the men, and most had to be deployed outside of the fort. General Washington had to worry about the main army that he was taking into New Jersey. Washington wanted to stay between the British and Philadelphia, figuring that they might move on the seat of Congress if given the opportunity. He divided his force, giving a portion to General Charles Lee to take north further upriver into the Hudson Valley. Lee's army would prevent any British attempt to move toward Albany, perhaps making a coordinated attack on Fort Ticonderoga in cooperation with General Carleton's forces in Canada. Washington left General Nathaniel Green with a separate command of Forts Washington and Lee. On November 8th, Washington wrote to Green, saying that the fort was useless at keeping British ships from moving up and down the river, that it seemed in imminent danger of attack, and that it probably was not worth risking the men and supplies that were held there. They should evacuate across the river to New Jersey. 
Washington, though, left the final decision up to Green, who was on the scene and had a better idea what was going on. Up until this time, General Green had no actual battlefield experience. He had arrived in Cambridge for the Siege of Boston a few weeks after Lexington and Concord. He was back in Rhode Island during the Battle of Bunker Hill. Washington had ordered him to be ready for an invasion from the north of Boston during the Battle of Dorchester Heights to the south of Boston. That invasion from the north never happened. When General Green moved with the army to New York, he had been in command of the forces on Long Island, but became deathly ill a few weeks before the battle and had to sit out that one too. His initial rise to general seemed to be based primarily on the fact that Congress wanted someone from Rhode Island and that he kept a fairly well-disciplined camp at the Siege of Boston. He would prove his value as a general later in the war. But at Fort Washington, Green was not only his name, it also described his battlefield experience. Green ignored Washington's advice to abandon the fort. Even though a British siege would probably prevail, Green hoped to make the British pay for the real estate with their lives, perhaps another Bunker Hill. He expected that when things got too hot, his men could escape across the Hudson River into New Jersey. Green did not occupy Fort Washington himself. Green set up his command across the river at Fort Lee in New Jersey. Instead, he left the honor of command at Fort Washington to Colonel Robert McGaw of Pennsylvania. McGaw was an Irish immigrant who had worked as a lawyer in western Pennsylvania before the war began. He was an ardent patriot who supported the cause in Pennsylvania politics, part of the radical patriots of western Pennsylvania who had been challenging the more conservative leaders in Philadelphia. He also became an associator shortly after Lexington and Concord. The associators were the Pennsylvania militia that really took up arms for the first time in the colony after the war began. Other than a few years' participation in that local militia, McGall really did not have any military experience before marching up to Cambridge in 1775. He was part of Thompson's Regiment of Riflemen, among the first Pennsylvanians to join the New England Army at Cambridge, where he served as a major. When he remained with the Continental Army at the end of 1775, as most of the army was going home, he received a promotion to colonel. After the army moved to New York, Colonel McGraw commanded the 5th Pennsylvania Battalion and took direct command at Fort Washington under the direction of General Green. Despite Washington's misgivings, his officers at the scene thought the fort could withstand a lengthy siege. If it seemed their defenses would fail, they expected to be able to retreat across the Hudson River to New Jersey. But Green did not even think there would be a siege. He expected the British to go into winter quarters, tackling the fort the following spring. General Howe, however, had no plans to end the campaign just yet. It was already November. As expected, he did not want to maintain a siege over the winter. He was looking to wrap up the fighting season. But before ending the fighting season, he thought he could clear the last American rebels off Manhattan. The bulk of the Continental Army had already fled the area. Howe had almost all of the forces under his command available to take the fort. Howe ordered the newly arrived Hessian General Neiphausen 
to take up a position just north of the fort with two columns comprising over 4,000 Hessian soldiers. Wilhelm Baron von Neiphausen was the second in command of all Hessian forces in America. He was an experienced officer who had served under Frederick the Great in his Prussian army. British General Lord Percy, who had saved the British expedition to Concord, and who had most recently distinguished himself in the invasions on Long Island, had already taken a position to the south of the fort with between four and 5,000 British and Hessian soldiers. From there, Percy monitored the Americans during the weeks when the main British army was gently nudging the main Continental Army out of Harlem Heights and White Plains. Admiral Richard Howe of the Navy brought up several ships of the line up the river to fire on the fort from the west. The Admiral even came ashore to work with General Percy in the assault from the south. General William Howe took up a position with his main army directly to the east of the fort. He and General Lord Cornwallis and General Edward Mayhew led over 4,000 regulars, including 800 Highlanders of the Black Watch, in a direct assault from the east. In total, General Howe had about 13,000 British and Hessian soldiers ready to take the 3,000 defenders at Fort Washington. Not all of these would be engaged in the actual battle. About 5,000 ended up being held in reserve. Howe had a pretty good idea of the fort's defenses. A few weeks earlier, Magaw's adjutant, William DeMont, deserted his post and entered the British lines. He brought with him sketches of the fort's defenses and intelligence about a garrison that was deeply divided. He noted that the fort had no internal water source, but had to carry water up from the river. There were also no barracks nor protected ammunition bunkers in the fort. The outer defenses leading up to the fort were rather weak, and there were miles of defenses around the fort that had far less soldiers than were needed to defend them. Many weak spots in the line would allow the British to push back the defenders to the fort itself. From there, the British could bring up cannon to nearly point-blank range. They could knock down the walls and also lob shells directly into the fort. On November 10th, Washington arrived on the scene from the New Jersey side. From there, he hoped to evaluate personally whether to abandon Fort Washington prior to any attack. Washington discussed the matter with his officers, but hesitated to make any final decision on the matter. By November 12th, two days later, Howe had his force in place. His men sat for several days, though, giving the Americans yet another opportunity to assess the situation and retreat at night across the river. On November 15th, British Lieutenant Colonel James Patterson approached the fort under a flag of truce. His message ordered the immediate surrender of the fort and said that if a surrender did not happen in the next two hours, everyone in the fort would be put to the sword. No surrender. It was a bit of bluster that the Americans did not believe. They knew General Howe would never permit such a massacre. McGall rejected the demand and sent Patterson back to his lines. He also sent word of the surrender demand across the river to General Green. By this time, Washington had left Fort Lee to find more comfortable quarters for himself in Hackensack. He still did not expect the British to launch an attack. 
At Fort Lee, General Greene received news of the surrender demand and forwarded the news to Washington in Hackensack. He told Washington he left standing orders with McGall to defend the fort until receiving further orders. Greene then went across the river himself to Fort Washington, along with General Israel Putnam, to discuss the situation with McGall. As I said, like Greene, McGall was not an experienced officer. He was confident that he could hold out against the British for at least a month and was in no mood to surrender or retreat. That evening, after dark, Greene and Putnam returned back across the river. As they made their way, they encountered General Washington in a boat headed toward them mid-river. Washington had received Greene's message and rushed to get to Fort Washington himself. The generals conferred on their boats still sitting in the middle of the Hudson River. They told Washington that McGall remained confident and prepared to defend the fort. Greene and Putnam had approved his defensive plan and convinced Washington that they should wait until morning before doing anything further. The three generals then returned to the New Jersey side. General Howe had given the Americans days to retreat. Delivering terms on the morning of the 15th turned out to be his final warning. He gave the Americans an opportunity to pull off another night escape. This time, though, the Americans declined the offer. They were going to stand and fight. Near dawn on the morning of November 16th, Hessian forces from the north began storming the outer trenches. At the same time, General Percy's forces, a mix of Hessian and British forces from the south, began storming the outer trenches from the south side. General Howe ordered an artillery bombardment of the fort from the east. The speed of the attack seemed to surprise the Americans, who began retreating from their outer defenses back into the fort itself. Then, almost as suddenly as the attack began, it stopped. General Howe sent orders to both Knifehausen and Percy to halt their attacks and pull back. Howe's main infantry, under Generals Matthew and Cornwallis, did not get across the Harlem River in time and were not ready. Both Knifehausen and Percy's attacking forces later grumbled that they had been succeeding before they had been ordered to stop and suffered far more casualties when they resumed the attack later that morning after the Americans were ready for them. When the attack started that morning, General Washington, along with Generals Green, Putnam, and Mercer, crossed over the river and took a position of observation at a house on a hill a few miles from the fort. The British kept getting closer to their position until the generals urged Washington to leave or be captured. Green even offered to stay behind and monitor things, but insisted that Washington leave. Finally, Washington agreed that they all should leave. The group left only about 15 minutes before the enemy took the hill. Had Washington been a bit slower or the British a bit faster, one squad might have captured almost all of the top leadership of the Continental Army. At around 11 a.m., the main British force under Cornwallis and Matthews finally got into position and the advance resumed on all fronts. Knifehausen's Hessians to the north had a particularly difficult time trudging through swamps, then having to climb up a rocky cliff area where several soldiers fell to their deaths. All the while, they came under fire from American cannons and riflemen. 
one of the artillerists that day was John Corbin, who was killed in the British assault. The only reason I mention his name as one of hundreds of otherwise anonymous casualties of this battle is that his wife, Margaret, was with him on the field dressed as a man and assisting him with the cannon. When he died, Margaret Corbin took his position on the cannon and continued loading and firing. She soon also took a hit and had to leave the field. Another rare example of women fighting in combat during this war. After a couple of hours, the American riflemen had to retreat. Sustained fire had fouled their barrels. They could not continue to fire until they cleaned their weapons, so they retreated back to the fort. Many other defenders acquitted themselves well, but the overwhelming number of attackers eventually forced the defenders to withdraw. Inside the fort itself, Colonel McGall's overcrowded garrison was pinned down by a steady and massive artillery bombardment. He received a message from Washington urging him to hold out until dark. A short time later, McGall learned that the Hessians had reached the fort walls and were demanding that he surrender or they would kill everyone in the fort. McGall tried to delay, requesting four hours to respond, but was given only 30 minutes. This time, McGall saw that his defenses would not hold and agreed to surrender. Few men were able to escape. A handful swam across the Hudson River, but most had to lay down their arms and surrender. By 4 p.m., the battle was over and the prisoners were being marched out of the fort under guard. The victors rebranded Fort Washington as Fort Neiphausen, and they would hold that fort for the next seven years. British recorded losses of 128 killed, wounded, or missing, while the Hessians lost 326. There's some evidence that Hessians killed some of the American prisoners, particularly riflemen, after surrender, out of anger and frustration from their losses. The terms of surrender promised that the garrison would be permitted to keep their personal baggage. Yet, as the British and Hessians marched their prisoners out of the fort, they stripped them of all valuables, including even some of their clothing. Hessians literally cut the backpacks off of prisoners as they march and did not hesitate to kick and beat the prisoners. The victors shouted that they were traitors and that they should all be killed on the spot. Among the prisoners, the British found a few deserters who had joined the Continental Army. These former regulars were sentenced to death. Some desperately searched to find George Washington among the prisoners. Disappointed to learn that he and the other generals were safely across the river in New Jersey. Washington watched the surrender through a telescope, something that he later described as giving him great mortification. The Americans suffered only 59 killed and 96 wounded, but the real loss was the capture of the fort and its garrison. The British took about 230 officers and 2,600 soldiers as prisoners. Most of those men probably would have been better off being killed in battle. Many wounded would die in the next few days or weeks as they went untreated, were denied food and water, and kept in terrible conditions. Even those who survived the battle without injury faced horrific conditions. They would spend the next several years in warehouses or aboard prison ships 
in the New York Harbor in the care of Joshua Loring. As you may recall, Loring was the husband of General Howe's mistress. As a reward for his compliance and discretion, Howe gave him charge of prisoners of war. Loring made a small fortune embezzling money for the food and care of the prisoners, allowing most of them to starve to death or die from disease brought on by hunger and other horrific conditions. By one estimate, more than two-thirds of the prisoners captured that day would die slow horrific deaths within the next 18 months. Officers who were taken prisoner tended to do a little bit better than enlisted men. While some of them were treated roughly in the weeks after capture, most were eventually allowed to live on parole either on Long Island or in New York City. They could arrange for their own quarters on the promise that they would not try to escape or take up arms until exchanged. Colonel McGall ended up living at the home of Rutgert Van Brunt in Gravesend, Long Island. He would be held as a prisoner on parole for nearly four years. But that time didn't end up being so bad for him. While a prisoner, he married Van Brunt's daughter, Marietta. In late 1780, he was finally exchanged, and the couple returned to McGraw's home in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. His neighbors hailed him as a returning hero and elected him to the Pennsylvania legislature. The fort itself, along with all of its cannon, ammunition, equipment, and food, fell into British hands, leaving the Continental Army without those desperately needed goods. On the other hand, the Continental Army also had 3,000 less mouths to feed. The fall of Fort Washington would be the greatest loss of soldiers for the Continental Army until near the end of the war. The staggering loss caused Congress and many Americans, not to mention other officers, to question not only General Greene's judgment, but also General Washington's. His decision to divide his forces in the face of the enemy and leave the garrison at Fort Washington to be a sitting duck led many to doubt his judgment. Washington was too indecisive. Perhaps it was time to consider a replacement. Next week, the British cross the Hudson and take Fort Lee in New Jersey. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Want to give a shout out today to Dave Salvatore, one of the show's Robert Morris Circle supporters on Patreon. Dave recently wrapped up his American Revolution Today podcast. 
However, he has plans in the works for a new project involving the revolution. Dave told me about his upcoming project, but I don't think it's ready for public disclosure yet. You can still sign up for his email list to get an announcement about his new podcast project involving the American Revolution and other news. Just go to his site, amrevtoday.com. I'll also mention that both Dave and I plan to be at History Camp Virginia on November 16th at George Mason University. If you want to attend, go to historycamp.org for more details. On today's episode, I discussed the fall of Fort Washington. This really was a disaster. General Washington was still not experienced or confident enough to withdraw from a bad fight. He did not want to be the general who was always running away. Many of his other less experienced generals shared the same notion. And this really led to this disaster. Washington and his officers failed to take General Howe's multiple hints that it was time to go. As a result, 3,000 soldiers were captured. To be fair, Washington did think that the army should have been evacuated, but he was not sure enough to order it. He left the final decision to the commander he had put in charge, General Nathaniel Greene. On many occasions, taking the advice of subordinates had worked out well for Washington, but not this time. Green, as I said in the episode, was completely inexperienced as a combat commander. Although he would go on to do great things later in the war, this was not his greatest moment, but fortunately did not completely destroy his reputation for the future. My book recommendation this week is Washington's General, Nathaniel Green and the Triumph of the American Revolution by Terry Galway. There are a number of pretty good green biographies out there, but many just focus on his southern successes later in the war. One reason I like Galway's book is that it gives more balanced look at his life from his Quaker roots to his death only a couple years after the end of the war. It's a good, solid, well-balanced biography, over 300 pages, not counting notes and index, and it was first published in 2004. The author, Galway, is a professor of history as well as a newspaper columnist. He's written about a dozen books, but no others on the American Revolution. But as I said, if you're looking for a good biography on Green, I think you should check out Terry Galway's book. My online recommendation this week is the British History Podcast. If you like history podcasts, I think you'll enjoy this one. After a few introductory episodes, the show begins with the Roman Empire. It's going in chronological order, and hundreds of episodes later is only up to the 9th century. The host, Jamie, does a great job telling a story while giving you in-depth information about the long and winding country that eventually gave birth to the United States. If you want lots more backstory on how we got to the American Revolution, check out the British History Podcast, available on all major platforms or at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. 
It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.